0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host. Well, actually, scratch that, I'm not your host today. You'll soon find out, but Joe Dukowski will be filling in as host for me. But in any case, it is still Feeding Curiosity, and I was happy to share the hosting chair with someone else. And today, so realistically, I was the editor on this episode. My guest today is Zachary Wagner. He is a writer researcher, ordained minister, and originally from the Chicagoland area. And that's why Joe wanted to take over on this one. Joe is a childhood friend of Zach's and thought, I mean, it was also just right in his wheelhouse of ideas. So that's why this happened. Zach now lives in Oxford, England, where he is pursuing a PhD in New Testament studies at Keble College, University of Oxford. He also serves as editorial director of the Center for Pastoral Theologians, where he co-hosts the CPT podcast. His research interests include Economics in the Ancient World, Divine Wages in the Second Temple, Judaism, and Early Christianity, Pauline epistles, The Gospel of Matthew, and The New Testament Masculinities. His first book, which is the main focus of this podcast, is Non-Toxic Masculinity, Recovering Healthy Male Sexuality, was published in 2023, Zach's other writings interests include evangelical and post-evangelical Christian discipleship, theological formation, and speaking against church-based abuse. So that is a mouthful, but this was a really great conversation. If you grew up in a religious world, you'll find a lot of this interesting. If you're interested in broadly how the entire Western world was set up, this will also be interesting to you. And from a more contemporary standpoint, if you're curious how we can think about men and masculinity in a post-me too world, I think you'll also find um a value here. This has been an area of interest for mine, um not really on the religious side of things, but how do men fit into this world where women have ever ever changing um amount of freedom and equal playing field in this modern world. I and some of the data behind this um this is a tangent, but we'll get into this in future episodes. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Zach Wagner and hosted by Joe Joukowsky. All right.
1: Hello, everyone. Uh, you might be surprised to not see Eric Wendell hosting this podcast today. He was gracious enough to let me take over and he has his reasons for this um, because our guest is Zachary Wagner, who wrote, hold on, I've got it right here. Non-toxic masculinity, um, as well as being an author, he is doing a PhD in the New Testament studies at the University of Oxford. He's also the editorial director of the Center for Pastor Theologians. And perhaps the least of his accomplishments is the fact that we grew up together. So, his parents, his parents, do my parents. Um, we grew up in the same church and have some similar background there.
2: And, I still hang uh, on the regular love, you know, Joe man we'll... they're 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 palling out in they 2023 do.
1: which is oh, cool yeah like just shotgunning beers <laughs> it's crazy big kind of Coors
2: light <laughs> boomer vibes
1: oh yeah de- definitely yeah it was like a white polo tucked into your uh, your beige shorts oh, I love and love it. Belt. I'm super well, barbecue super endeared to that all right so tell me um First, about your motivation to write the book.
2: Yeah. um, I mean, a few things. There was a moment, um, kind of in early 2021, there were a few stories that broke. I I kind of allude to this in in the introduction of the book. Um, But there's this kind of world-famous evangelist, apologist, Creature named robbie zacharias who passed away a couple years ago and there was a story that broke uh kind of a long process of things coming up in late 2020 and early 2021 actually after he had passed away where it came to light that this guy was like a, a serial like like mega creep like sexual abuser would like go across the world and um like meet up with women and, you know, tell them if they like told anybody about this encounter that they would like be suffering God's wrath and all of this sort of stuff and had, you know, hundreds of pictures of women on his phone sort of thing. And this is like this world famous, um, like one of the most famous kind of preachers in the world, honestly, um, and really respected kind of in the evangelical church and, you know, would preach and had led a lot of people to faith. So. News comes out that this guy is a uh, major creep. Um, And yeah, a few other things. But the one that kind of really hit me in this moment was, people may remember in early early 2021, there was a shooting, um, mass shooting in the Atlanta area where this guy went around to a few different massage parlors and uh, just, started shooting people and i think i think eight or nine people died in that um but he didn't die he was arrested and um during the kind of questioning with the police uh they're obviously searching for a motive and they asked this guy like hey why'd you do this why did you show up at these massage parlors and kill um these people and uh what he said was well hey i'm a sex addict and i was doing a a public service by eliminating temptation. So uh presumably this guy had been kind of in a in whatever frequency, who knows, showing up at these various massage parlors and having these women give him a massage and apparently there was kind of happy ending situations going on. And then he was kind of racked with guilt about that and going all sorts of crazy. And um then uh also came out that he was kind of a baptized member of at a southern baptist church and uh, had been involved in their youth ministry a couple of years previous and um yeah that kind of was a moment for me when i saw this guy make this statement like hey these women were um were sexual temptation for me, therefore I must kill them. I must like eliminate this temptation. And obviously yeah. that's very extreme and terrible, um, and disturbing. But the description of like women as temptation that needs to be kind of like somehow distanced or avoided, and this guy went to the conclusion like eliminated murder, which is super disturbing. I noticed in that logic, like a certain kind of perverse resonance with the way that i was raised to think about sexuality sexual temptation and and women frankly Mm -hmm. um where there's this idea that uh men are these kind of like hypersexual creatures and the only way to avoid kind of indulging in these illicit sexual uh behaviors is through avoidance um, so this guy took that to an extreme. So that just started me processing a lot of things, including kind of uh, this 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 series of scandals that were emerging within the, the conservative evangelical church that uh, you and I both uh, grew up in. And a lot of times these scandals were of a sexual nature, like such and such famous family or pastor or this church knew about this child abuse and they covered it up or this pastor actually... Um, was addicted to this or that, or the other thing, sexual, um, and the, this was starting to emerge as a pattern. Um, so I was starting to ask some of those questions and I wrote up a little article and there was, um, uh, some positive response to that. and, uh, yeah, so that's a bit of the inception of me thinking through this kind of emphasis on sexual purity. And then I'm sure we'll get more into this that I grew up with and connecting some of the dots to, uh, sexual violence and, um, the kind of scandals that I was seeing emerging in the church.
1: Yeah. So I'm trying, I'm trying to think a little bit about when I was reading the book, I was, it was interestingly contextualizing for it- me. I think that my experience is probably a touch different than your own. It seemed out to me so much that um it wasn't like women, like I can't vouch for my memory, <laughs> but it, the impression that I have is that women for me when I was young were just like, wow, what an amazing thing. Wow. I yes, can't believe that exists. Um but somehow the fact of my really admiration as a kid um was uh was viewed as sort of a negative thing. Yes. That the idea that um this that this not not just that it wasn't taken as a note, like as a fact, is oh, you're very attracted to that woman. Um, uh, maybe you should approach her, maybe you should do this. And maybe there's an appropriate way of approaching a woman. There's an appropriate way of engaging in that kind of a relation. That wasn't exactly mentioned. It was more like you better just not danger, go down that danger, road in that to feel the attraction. Let into feel the attraction. Right. This is a, this is a dangerous thing. You're playing with fire. hundred percent. Right? Yeah. And I found that at that age, like junior high, high school, probably more high school. And I became much, much more involved um, in the church that I grew up in. Um, I found uh, that the only way I felt confident with, with a woman was when I was denying her advances. Wow. And it was something fascinating. Like, that was the only appropriate way. Right. It was like the only way to appropriately engage in a relationship with a woman where I was doing the right thing mm. was to always be, um, in denial, an act of denial.
2: Fascinating. And so that was, it was interesting to read this. And did and, that, and if we'll I can,
1: now if, part of why I wanted to. Talk yeah.
2: About. If I can ask you, Joe, is that like, just cause I'm curious, I think that's fascinating. Was that like a, I, This is like a holy way of living, or this is a manly way of living, or this is the right thing to do, or this is just, this is appropriate. Like unpack that, like just a little bit. I'm curious how you, how you frame that in your mind.
1: Well, it didn't feel manly to me. I can't, I can't think of any discussion that resonated with, from my youth about what, about masculinity at all. I mean, nothing from the secular world or from. Um, or from the Christian world, I didn't, I was getting no conversation about what an appropriate masculinity was. I can remember growing up seeing the prototype for toxic masculinity emerging, yep. which was that to act in a masculine way to even, and this was a kind of a sh- more, I think I got more of the shaming from the more, the secular world than I actually did from the Christian oh, world, fascinating. which was that to approach a woman, to hold the door, to do these things are actually a form of oppression. I mean, that isn't the language that was used at the time, but it's the same lineage, right? It's on the same Mm -hmm. line. And so that's probably one piece. I think that the reason that that denial element was there was that I had a strong attraction to many women as any teenage boy does. And because it was strong, the only way I I could have power over the strong attraction um, that was an appropriate one in my moral worldview was denied. Yeah. So instead of learning and mastering this and having the guidance of an adult figure or um, like, you know somebody that you look up to or just an older male being like, okay, let's we need you're going through something. You're a teenager. Let me just tell you how to navigate the situation in an appropriate way. It was never this common sense like way of thinking about it. It was very much blown up and it was, this is a um, divine importance. Mm-hmm. So that's my impression.
2: Yeah. yeah. And I think in terms of like the essence and the kernel of it, whatever metaphor or language you want to use there, I think that's not dissimilar. You know, you talked about our, our approach or our experiences of purity culture or however you want to define it being different but i think that what i'd identify there is a fear of sexuality um where i think a lot of times for boys and girls in a different way but in a unique way for boys um if as as you grow up in a church context certainly but even in the broader culture i think there's a there's a sense that, hey, you're gonna start feeling this stuff. And that's something to be afraid of, and it's dangerous, and it's and and I think that's just a fine line between that and it's bad. Um, and you're bad for feeling yeah. those things. And your body is dangerous. And mm. um And it's funny, like there's this kind of ambivalence because I think, you know, in the context that I grew up. And there was definitely like no, no no guys like sex is like good it's a gift from god and like these sexual feelings that you have are good but it's like the flip side of it is also like but it's terrible and it will ruin your life if you use it wrong and there's like a kernel of truth there i think people like you make foolish like sexual decisions and this is why like teens need you know you're talking about adult figures teens need guidance on this certainly like wasn't it wasn't wrong of christians to be like hey we should help teenagers like live wisely in terms of their sexuality that wasn't like a wrong impulse um but uh that can kind of just that's crazy making it seems to me when it's like this is the most dangerous terrible thing and but also it's like this beautiful gift from god eventually maybe if you get married you'll have this kind of like awesome beautiful sex life with this only like one person that you've ever um interacted with sexually and that's the recipe that's the recipe to like the best sex you can possibly have um which was the messaging that i got a lot and you know in in the in the book i talk about how that didn't exactly pan out for me um but uh yeah and i think that betrays um yeah maybe an unhelpful um emphasis or approach to sexuality Suggested to me. Mm. So, where do you where do you think that this
1: comes from? Like, I, I, there's the Tantrics have no problem with the way that they navigate sexuality. We, I know that Christianity seems to have a bit of a neurosis with this, and has for some time. I think it was particularly in that sexuality is an act of the body, and there's something about the body that doesn't sit right in Christianity. When I look back, I know there's talks. I think it was, I. Uh, Pope Innocent III had some choice words about the body. I, mean, all sorts of I don't remember if it was Augustine or also. Yeah. Like I, I want to say it was Augustine. said something like, we're born
2: between piss and shit. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know Augustine what, well enough. What a way to
1: put it, man.
0: Right.
2: Yeah, I think, well, that brings up something. So I'm so, curious. Sure, yeah. I think, <laughs> arguably, um, Christianity is erratically Um, body affirming religion, um, which might sound surprising to some people listening, or might sound surprising to you, but the narrative that, like, God made the world as good, and then God, the Son, became incarnate in Jesus, um and then uh the ending the ending of the christian story in the future is the belief our bodies will be raised and redeemed so it's kind of like physical creation is good all the way across in the christian narrative um but early in the church's history um and i talk about this a little in the book early in the church's history there was a arguably corrupting influence of uh this is simplifying um but a platonic dualism that viewed materiality as corrupt and um lesser than spiritual reality so you think about plato and the kind of denigration of the physical and the orientation towards Excuse me orientation towards the the forms as the kind of ideal that um humanity is is you know the imperishable soul is the good stuff and the perishable body is the bad stuff and there's a certain way of reading the Apostle Paul where it seems to be that he's saying exactly that sort of thing um I wouldn't say that's the right way to read the Apostle Paul, but that's certainly how many people have read him and Um, Augustine, whom you mentioned, is, you know, with some nuance, and I'm not an Augustine expert, um, but with some nuance, more or less read Paul and kind of imported a certain, um, type of Platonic dualism, Neoplatonism into Christian theology. And, um, Augustine is a church father who lived in the fourth century, um, and uh, many people would argue is the most influential theologian in church history outside of the New Testament. So it's kind of like okay. Jesus, the Apostle Paul, St. Augustine. Like, that's the ranking in terms of, like, the people who hmm. made Christianity. Um, so Augustine kind of codified a certain skepticism about the body in Christian practice in christian theology and christian thought um but that's the only way or arguably the right way augustine was you know brilliant and right about a lot of things but um you know people have been recently critiquing his his approach to kind of dualism in the body for sure um and you could point to someone even earlier like saint irenaeus as a theologian who um, definitely saw a much more kind of earthy narrative. And by that, I mean like a narrative that uh, elevated and valued and celebrated the goodness of materiality and the goodness and therefore the goodness of bodies um, in the Christian tradition. Hmm. Um, but that quickly in Irenaeus is, um, is late second century, if I'm not mistaken, uh, but that type of tradition gets overshadowed. Like everyone gets overshadowed by Augustine. Augustine is so massive in the story of the way Christian theology unfolds. Um, mm. So yeah, if you, if you just know that there's this kind of skepticism about bodies early in the Christian story, it's not difficult to start to put some of the pieces together on why Christians have been skittish about sex for most of the church's history. Um and um you know even in the you know the Catholic Church today that in in requires that priests are celibate and single. Um and that's one manifestation of it, but also a a certainly a fear of 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 sex and sexuality that has um characterized, you know, the church for a lot of its history. Um but yeah, I mean, maybe we can pause there, and I we, I, you know, I'm happy to yeah, hear any thoughts that you have, and we can go a few different directions.
1: Yeah, I'm. I have two thoughts that came to mind. One was one of kind of clarification sure. for me, which is um, you talked about um, Plato and the forms, and this kind of dualism that emerges out of between the body and the mind or spirit yep. and body. Um, and I thought of the Gnostics. Yeah, 100%. And from my understanding, the Gnostics kind of took that and took that right. They took that to a pretty wild degree. I think yep. they broke into like two sects, and one of them was super just all about the mind yep. and the body was neglected. And then the other one was basically violating everything about the body on principle.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly okay, right. right. Yeah. So the Gnostics is kind of like an early Christian, I mean, not exclusively Christian, but Christian Gnost- Gnostics show up early enough. You know, Christian, quote unquote. Some people would say, well, if you're Gnostic, you're not Christian. Um, but people who are, uh, members of the Jesus movement who kind of have a disposition that is more Gnostic. Um, and Gnostic comes from the Greek word, uh, for knowledge. You can kind of hear the, the KN or the GN in the, in yeah. the Gnostic there. Um, this idea that there was kind of a, a cerebral, almost secret way of relating to God through kind of this, Exclusive piece of information. Um, so it was a privileging of the mind and information and knowledge over and against physicality in the body. And this shows up early enough in the Christian movement Mm -hmm. that it actually shows up in the New Testament, particularly in the, in the, uh, epistle of 1st John. It seems to be that the, the author, the apostle John is reacting to what I, one of his kind of reasons for writing is to critique. Um Christian Gnostics who were claiming that uh Jesus had not come uh as a physical person or at, at the very least um only appeared to have a physical body um nice. so you have statements in the apostle in in first john says any any spirit or any person that claims that Jesus has not come in the flesh and sarks in Greek is not from god so there's kind of already this these kind of lines being drawn so people who kind of deny the incarnation that jesus had a physical body they're outside of us Hmm. um so that of course creates tensions with what we were just saying about augustine and the apostle paul and all sorts of things so these are early christian kind of tensions and debates um how you how and how you relate to the body but gnosticism Hmm. is kind of some people will say it's like the proto Christian heresy is this denigration of the body. A simplified way I get to that, I get to that in my book, um, when I'm talking about sexuality. And then a kind of a later iteration of that is a, is a, um, a heresy called docetism, which comes uh, from the Greek word, uh, dakeo, which means to appear or to seem like. Um, so docetism is the belief that Jesus, actually didn't have a body he only appeared to be human he wasn't actually human um and the motivation behind that is because human bodies are evil so a a, you know an exalted being like Mm -hmm. a god couldn't couldn't be in a human body it would be a denigration to that being um and then. Okay. Is that
1: is that a splinter off of Gnosticism or are these parallel? It's later. docetism Yeah,
2: it it's kind of in the same genealogy, I guess you could say. I don't know. I'm not super, super clear on the history. It's not my it's not my um, area of expertise. Okay. Um but yeah, I mean they're they're connected, certainly. Um in at least in the terms of kind of the genealogy of ideas. Um so the way I connect that to sexuality is I I think kind of Christians today, in as much as we kind of like feel icky or distrust or kind of like about um, our sexuality. And if we apply that to Jesus, because kind of the Orthodox, um, <laughs> the Orthodox uh, position, belief on Jesus shakes out to be in the third and fourth century that Jesus was fully divine fully human had a fully human body um just like us so i say well that means he had a you know obviously a sexual body that's not trying to be pervy or anything like that it's just like hey he was was a dude like you know this is part of being a male human being um but i think a lot of christians if they think like jesus had a sexual body or jesus you know in all likelihood, it would have experienced some sort of sexual or erotic desire. Who knows what that looked like for him? Um, that kind of like makes us feel like, no, that's not the sort of thing that I can imagine Jesus participating in. I'd argue that's a, that's kind of modern day Gnosticism. If we've kind of like dehumanized Jesus such that we've made his sexuality something that we cannot combine with his sinlessness or his divinity or something like that. I think betrays a, a certain kind of modern docetism. Like, yeah, Jesus looked human, but he wasn't actually human. Um, so that's some of the connection connections that I make there.
1: That's, yeah, that's fascinating. There's a um, an author, a psychiatrist, a guy named uh, Ian McGilchrist. Yes, I've, I'm familiar with that. Brilliant. Name, yeah. I mean, okay. So he wrote a book called The Master. Oh, and yes, 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 yes. about the
2: relationship between the two. I haven't read it, but great. it's on my, like, Okay. Have you? Have I you haven't. Read? No, but it's on my like oh, list man. for the next couple of years if I can get to it. So yeah, I'm familiar with the thesis, but it yeah, is it is worth. Me, yeah.
1: Yes. So he's trying to describe the relationship between these two hemispheres. The right hemisphere is about being, and the left hemisphere is about doing. Is a simple way to put it. So the right hemisphere takes an impression of the world. Bang! Here's what the world looks like as it is, and so it organizes that information perceptually and starts to hand it over to the left hemisphere. And the left hemisphere likes to identify things. So it gives them names. It goes, bang, 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 gives it all these names. And then it'll start to abstract them out of their context. Now that it has a symbol to represent the actual the, uh, constituent parts of that experience, it can pull them out and start moving them around. And it's like a child taking apart a remote control to figure out how it works. And then it can, when super abstract, it can literally manipulate all these things because they're in sometimes just a symbol and no longer the experience itself. And then with the abstraction, it can bring that back to reality, overlay it on reality and use what it learned to manipulate reality. But because it's about doing, the left hemisphere is about doing, um, it grasps things. It's about manipulating. It's about... Um, uh, playing with these kinds of things. is actually sort of a predatory part of the brain. Mm. So like birds, because they have their eyes on different sides of their head. Um when they're when they're just looking around, they'll use their left eye, which is connected to their right hemisphere. So yep. the right hemisphere is looking around. But when they need to pick up a seed, they'll turn it and use their right eye, left hemisphere, to oh, grab fascinating. It. And so these things operate in different ways. And humans will do this too. You can cover people's eyes and have them reach into something that they can't see and try to grab an object. If you have them do it with their right hand, they'll grasp at it. If you have them do it with their left hand, they'll explore. They'll go like this. Like, feel for it. Feel it out. And so, what the left hemisphere does is it can get into this place It's like this Baudrillardian, that's how you say it, hyper-reality, where it's just a hall of mirrors and just abstractions off of abstractions after abstractions, and they're pure, and they're perfect, and they're, Everything about them is like sort of divorced from reality, though. And so what I'm hearing and what you're describing about this kind of um, Gnostic and docetism uh, way of docetistic way of looking at the world um, is it's very abstract that it seems not it it disconnects. It uh, snaps the thread from abstract idea down to concrete reality, which
2: leads to a distrust of the body. Which I think is, and we talk about right. things that are crazy making. I think that's pretty, pretty fundamental. If you're all in your head and you can't trust your body, there's a yeah. privileging of the kind of.
1: Yeah. And it, and it has to be, sorry, it has to be wrong. And in some sense, because as McGilchrist is talking, he's actually warning about this left hemispheric way of going. So he calls the book, the master and his emissary right. and the master has to be the right hemisphere and the emissary, his subordinate has to be the left hemisphere. And the reason for that is because, oh, it's so good. But one of the um, reasons for that is because all of the information that the left hemisphere gets is from the body, which the right hemisphere has more access to. So this idea that you can just have perfect ideas and somehow overlay them on the world or even understand the world and to understand as well that your abstraction will interfere with the way that you perceive things. you You need to subordinate thought to being.
2: Absolutely. And, it, I, you know, I, and I'm going to keep saying over and over that I'm not an expert in any of this, but this is, a you know, fundamental debate that shakes out, down into kind of like early modern philosophy as well with Descartes and, um, yeah. oh gosh, who's the, um, who's the kind of sensory perception guy? I'm blanking on that. Shouldn't have, shouldn't have drank two glasses of wine. From that, that same era? Is that, sorry, who? From the same era as Descartes? um I want to say a little later. Um, but again, I, and all that to say is this. There's Hume we're talking about. Hume, Hume? Is that what you said? Well, he talked a lot about the. Like, I took the word impression directly. Yeah, sure. Again. But I'm, I'm, we might just be. At least I'm expressing my ignorance here. All that to say is that I think this is a pretty fundamental kind of philosophical question. That certainly has kind of religious import through the Christian right. tradition and the Christian tradition, obviously being so influential in the West, this kind of shakes out, um, down, down the centuries. Yeah. So yeah, we're kind of, kind of at the heart of it, it.
1: Okay. So one more question about that era and where we can have a touchstone for this kind of, um, uh, almost neurotic distaste for the body and sexuality, um, by proxy. Um, it Camille Paglia makes an argument in sexual persona that, uh, the Christians, early Christians growing up in the Roman Empire and largely the decay of the Roman Empire, seeing its decadence, were in some sense traumatized. It is almost like the way that she speaks about it that it's like there's scar tissue from that era still that needs to be sort of broken up because they were witnessing this wild um, sexual behavior from the Romans at the time i'm wondering if you see any truth to that
2: yeah i think it is true that the there was kind of philosophical debate about the appropriateness of sexual quote-unquote liberation i suppose in the in the roman world it is it is, it's on my read, the case that it was a more sexually permissive culture, certainly, than the kind of Judeo-Christian iteration of Western culture that replaced it. Certainly. Um, but I think it can be overblown sometimes. Like I was just reading, um, from my research, I am currently reading Seneca, who's a uh, Stoic, um, Roman yeah. philosopher from the uh first century around the same time that christianity is emerging although he doesn't express awareness of christianity of that um yeah there are traditions that definitely kind of will critique sexual promiscuity and sexual license and will talk about um sexual deviance quote-unquote as a perversion and an ill to society or something like that so it's not like you know all bets are off and everybody in the Roman Empire is just like, yeah, do whatever you want. Like, that's, that's probably an overread. Um, but it was, I think, mm-hmm. you know, you want to talk about, quote, unquote, paganism, it was a more sexually permissive culture, certainly. And you see uh, reactions mm-hmm. in the New Testament, um, where, you know, Romans one is probably the uh, best example where the apostle paul is like yeah all these kind of pagans out here these gentiles are doing all sorts of crazy pervy things and that's why god's going to judge them like that's a kind of critical um Mm. read of what paul is doing in romans chapter one but all those qualifiers so so last thing i'll say on that is that um There have been people who have suggested that the kind of Jewish Christian read on pagan sexual mores was a bit of a caricature. Like, it wasn't as intense as if we just read our Christian sources, it might seem to be. And someone like, you know, someone like Seneca, who is, like, critiquing sexual promiscuity, kind of an indulgence in passion was considered, um effeminate in a lot of um which is ironic the opposite of what we we have in our culture today where we kind of consider um kind of hyper and sexual eroticism as a masculine trait or a masculine vice we might even say um they actually in the ancient world mm-hmm. would describe it as effeminate a lot which is really fascinating to me um and they would say like the virtue mm-hmm. Um, the virtuous way of living is a bit more constrained and in not indulging in sexual, uh, excess. And of course, you know, you have your wife and your legitimate children. And that's kind of like the right lane to direct your sexuality into. Um, some of these philosophers would argue, but the kind of sleeping with your servant boy, uh, as just kind of part of the gig and going out with temple prostitutes and this and that and the other thing, that's kind of, that's kind of girly. Is the language that these that these people would use? Interestingly enough, um, so yeah, long kind of meandering answer to say that. Bottom line, all those qualifiers aside, is I think it is the case: the emergence of Christianity into the Roman Empire, and then the, as the kind of kind of foundation for Western civilization, does represent, I'd argue, a mainstreaming of Jewish sexual ethics and jewish sexual ethics were much Mm -hmm. more contained um and uh very strictly prescribed through um like the codes of leviticus that kind of have all the the nasties that it's like these are abominations to god that includes you know things like incest and homosexuality and any number of things um and there's a very kind of clear boundary markers in judaism that would have been kind of up for debate in the Roman world. Not, it's not to say that no one would have condemned those things and it was just kind of all bets are off, but there were very clear kind of sexual ethical boundaries in the Jewish tradition that, um, then kind of become more mainstream as Christianity takes influence and Christianity kind of takes on all of those, um, those Jewish uh, values as it relates to sexual ethics. There's a lot of debate on that, but I'm, I mm. feel I, I feel pretty confident that um, the Christian tradition doesn't revise Jewish sexual ethics in any significant way. Huh, that's interesting.
1: Okay, so there's an interplay here going on between uh, like traditional uh, Christian culture, their focus on the body, there's a debate about the body, whether it's good or bad, and, and they're pulling it up for hundreds of years also have some influence from the roman empire or paganism probably more appropriately um in the way that uh, at least jewish culture was interacting with that and that carries on. Mm. So i, I want to fast forward through time sure. a little and get to the actual book <laughs> <laughs> Because we've we've talked about some really interesting. interesting and i could talk about this for an entire, you know, um thing. I don't and i i so it, it, for those that don't know um which might include, in my impression, um, even contemporary evangelicals. Can you just give us a trace of the lineage of evangelical Christianity of the kind that we grew up in, right back to the founding, like just touch the big point? Sure,
2: yeah. Um, Well, there's a couple places you can start it. The first would be kind of um, the awakening movements and revivalism of the first and second great awakening. Um, going back to around a little before the founding of the United States, actually before the American revolution. Um, and that's associated with, uh, preachers like, um, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, who, um, Jonathan Edwards is the, uh, grandfather of Aaron Burr of, uh, the Hamilton musical fame. Fun fact. Um, uh. And then the second great awakening. So these are these movements that are kind of, um, yeah, they're characterized by people showing up and listening to a preacher talk about like, hey, I know you guys are all kind of nominally Christian. You grew up believing, but if you don't have this personal faith and you, you're like, you're going to hell and you need to make sure that you believe uh, in the true gospel, and it's just this kind of, kind of, this, this, this very revivalist vibe where you show up and you listen to a preacher and then you cry and you confess your sins and you, uh, and you, uh, feel really badly and then you have a born again experience. Um, not every iteration of Christianity has looked that way. Um, that might seem very familiar to some people. Um, as like, well, that's what Christianity is like, isn't it? No, but it's not, hasn't always been that way. Um, so the revivalist movements are really influential, but then, uh, later in the late 19th century, there was the rise of kind of German, um, higher critical readings of the New Testament. Um, and I shouldn't say the New Testament, certainly the whole Bible, um, which was kind of taking As critical of a historical edge to the biblical text as one could and saying, you know, like we've always heard that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but what if he didn't? And what if it was actually this kind of collection of five different sources and we can kind of cut and splice and piece it together this way, or, you know, Paul's, uh, epistles, Uh, It seems pretty clear that he didn't write Ephesians or Colossians or 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus for various reasons and this and that. So there was kind of this like very post-enlightenment critical edge to this might be more than you were bargaining for um, to the um, Mm -hmm. to this German scholarship. And then in the early 20th century, there's a mostly American, also kind of British movement that responds to that. Um, that's often called fundamentalism. So fundamentalism is like a return to a more traditional quote unquote, conservative way of, um, viewing the biblical text, which is like, you know, the church has always believed that Paul wrote all the epistles that we associate with Paul's name and the Germans are uh, kind of doing this godless thing where they're thinking that they know better than the Bible, but uh, this is a conservative, revivalist, um, gospel-centered, cross-centered, activist, pragmatist movement that emerged in the earliest 20th century that's Hmm. often associated with fundamentalism. And literally there's a collection of papers called The Fundamentals, um, which is kind of going down a laundry list. You You can Google this and look it up on Wikipedia, going down a laundry list of different kind of issues having to do with biblical inerrancy or inspiration or authorship or science and faith and reason and all sorts of things and kind of taking a a pretty conservative s- stance on all of those things and and situating that within this revivalist tradition part of the protestant tradition um and that what i've just described is the root of what most people think of as mainstream evangelicalism today. Um, there's a lot of that things that we can see yeah. about evangelical Christianity that are tied back to that. Um, and we could get into some of those, but that's a bit of the history. And then in the second half of the 20th century, um, this kind of fundamentalist segment of Christianity becomes much more politically activist. Um, this is the rise of the quote-unquote religious right um particularly in the 1980s and late 70s and very influential into the 90s and the early aughts um these are the people who got um reagan elected like reagan was the first kind of um presidential candidate to tap into this kind of moral majority religious right um thing that is associated with american and evangelicalism such as it is and then this is also um this is very keep going
1: i was gonna say this is very interesting particularly the fundamentalism part my impression had been or i should say my hypothesis was that um that some of this traces back this kind of fundamentalist way of thinking traces back to the um reformation and that when, upon witnessing the uh, corruption of the church, um, yep. everybody asks, begins to ask, uh, "Where, where is the true 100%. Christianity? Where does that lie? What is the foundation that we can walk? on yep. here?" And then suddenly they all turn to the text, which is now easily available to them, and then that creates a kind of fixation on the wording. And these, I mean, that's of ex- in the that's Bible. exactly right. Yeah, that that's plausible? exactly
2: right. You just kind of gave the, pre- the mm-hmm. prequel to everything I said. So if you want to kind of situate it within the, wow, within the 2000 year history of the church, there's kind of, um, the, the Catholic church, which is doing battle with some of the heresies like docetism that I was describing in the first kind of 500 years, you have the great schism yeah. between the Greek Orthodox church and the Roman Catholic church then, which is, becomes less significant, at least for Westerners like us as the Eastern Orthodoxy kind of settles in its own little zone and Western Christianity continues to expand. Um, And then exactly what you described, going to the Protestant Reformation where the church um, as an institution had become quite corrupt in various ways. And people like Martin Luther and uh, John Calvin and Zwingli, and even within the Catholic church, there were um, kind of reforming voices as well. Um, And that um, was a redirection back to the biblical text as authority for Christian living, hundred percent. um And mm. uh, okay,
1: so that makes sense to me that fundamentalism, one. sorry, that fundamentalism would appear, um or would in some sense that that was the focus of fundamentalism, and then evangelical Christianity later on the road for, to take this was an easy yes, hundred percent because
2: to. the emphasis on the biblical text that emerged from, oh, and Christians have always the massive value of biblical text but there was kind of like there was a strong emphasis in the protestant reformation on the church as an institution is wrong because they're going contrary to the biblical text uh in x y or z way um mm. and then that is also i mean what i was talking about with the kind of fundamentalists response to german higher criticism is like these people are critiquing and denigrating the value and the authority and the reliability of the biblical text so it's a very protestant move ironically the german higher critics were lutheran ie protestants as well um but there is a kind of very reformational move when you when you see the authority of scripture being undermined um to react strongly to that and say that's not the true christianity if you're, if you're getting off the rails from um, what we view as the, the clear reading of the biblical text.
1: Fascinating. Okay, so what we have so far is a pretty nice picture, which is that there are historical reasons for the development and suspicion of the body and a bunch of debates about this for a whole bunch of reasons. That traces its way up through Protestantism, which has a particular focus on the text. It translates all the way to the fundamentals Um, and then, so the question becomes about purity culture, Mm -hmm. did purity culture arrive out of a explicit
2: reading of particular parts of the Bible? Oh oh, man, what a good question. I, my hot take is no. Um, ironically, I think, um, (laughs) I think purity culture misreads the biblical text in all sorts of places um and imports okay so so
1: let me clarify let me clarify it's so not the question is maybe that's overstating it maybe yeah maybe that's overstating but yeah answer answer your question
2: or ask your question rather
1: right so instead of saying did they get it right or wrong i just want to know if when these people were coming up with purity culture were they constantly fixing for sure on yes in a way that absolutely okay
2: so uh, i mean this language is shot through in the kind of purity culture emphasis on premarital abstinence and and you know exclusive kind of narrow emphasis on sex within heterosexual marriage or any number of things um the language of quote-unquote biblical like biblical sexuality biblical ways of doing this and the bible is clear on x y or z is is pervasive in purity culture um part of the questions that i wanted to ask in my book it's like is that actually a a solid reading of the biblical text all the time um which is not, you know i'm at and remain in terms of sexual ethics i remain a fairly um kind of conservative straight laced dude in many ways. Um, but, uh, my understanding of the way the biblical text relates to some of those views has certainly, certainly shifted, um, from when I was, when I was younger or less educated or whatever the case may be.
1: Okay. Okay. So now that we've caught up to the present, Can you give me a definition for the listeners of purity culture? Yeah,
2: so I talk about this, and I guess it's really the first and second chapter of my book. Um, I would define purity culture as conservative Christian, you can put in parentheses, like white Christian movements. Um, That was... Um, launched in response to the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s that placed a pronounced emphasis on sexual purity as um, exemplified by premarital abstinence, so kind of sexual restraint outside of marriage, and also marital sexual fulfillment, which is an Emphasis on kind of sexual freedom and fulfillment within heterosexual marriage. Um, so that's maybe not the most concise definition. I could pull up the page and give you the more concise definition. Um, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a cultural movement that emerges within, with kind of Christian emphases and Christian, Christian language in response to a broader cultural movement of, i.e. the, the sexual revolution.
0: Hmm.
1: Okay, so it sounds like the sexual revolution happens. Um, there's some concern about this at the very least. <laughs> there is an instinctual turn to the text to look for ways of responding, and then a fixation on the text in a way that produces kind of litigious uh, uh, sexual culture and a and mixed not only is it the stick there's also a carrot and the carrot is your little sexual habit that you get 100%. after you yeah
2: i think um oh i was thinking as you were just as you were just saying yeah purity culture in some ways it's not a radical departure from like anything the church has said about sex in its 2000 year history like you know christians and moralists always believed that like you know sex is for marriage and is associated with marriage but you wouldn't see like language like quote-unquote saving yourself for marriage until purity culture like that's a unique Hmm. thing that emerges in purity culture that kind of language and you wouldn't have um, extended conversations about how like remaining pure sexually guarantees you more sexual pleasure and enjoyment later in life. That's also a uniquely purity culture thing. So like the the kind of like, you know, 30,000 foot view of the sexual ethics is not all that different, but the emphasis and the language and the ways of like commending those sexual ethics are very unique. And I would argue extreme. Um, and again, I would argue kind of sub-Christian in, in the way that they went about that. Hmm. Because it became it became more about arguably about the, you know, you talked about it being litigious. I think that's right. It became arguably more about the kind of like boundaries and restrictions as an end in themselves. To some extent, as much as people would say the Bible is clear and they would use biblical this and that language to describe this. It wouldn't be a really theologically robust justification for this. It would just be, you know, this is the way to guarantee your best sex life. Um, which doesn't seem all that Christian to, me. um, it just seems like, Hey, the culture is obsessed with sex and we can be obsessed with sex too. And we'll actually say, God wants you to have the best sex ever. And here's how to guarantee that you get access to that. Mm.
1: Oh yeah. Okay. So I remember you talking about in the book that part of purity culture ends up being this kind of um, step-by-step program. Here's your five-step program to the best sex you've ever had in your
2: life. (laughs) And so this this the best sex the best sex you've never had actually because you're supposed to be saving yourself.
1: But, uh, which says something about how the fantasy is always better, but, (laughs) but, (laughs) but I mean, Um, I don't want to
2: sit on that first. I don't want to sit on that, but I think there's something interesting there. Like you talk about the, the, like whatever you dream up in your mind sexually, or this kind of erotic fantasy is going to outstrip any, any reality that could ever exist. Um, so that's a recipe for, uh, some bad news. I think if you're like hyping up marital sex, it's just like it's going to be everything you ever dreamed of it, uh, dreamed it could be, and you say that to a bunch of people who have never had sex Mm -hmm. before. Um, And then... Would you say it's um,
1: idolizing sexuality?
2: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, Christians Mm -hmm. love to say that the culture idolizes sex and sexual liberation and sexual identity and LGBT people are making sexuality their identity. But one of the things that I want to emphasize in the book is like, I mean, Christians do that too. Like, um, we've just kind of like Jesusified our idolatry of sex and we put the word biblical, biblical in front of it. Um, but mm. it's idolizing all of a sudden, I would argue. Okay.
1: I have a question about some of the, the authors that helped push, um, this thing that were really influential with purity culture, mm-hmm. um, but it's going to take a little explanation to make sense where I'm coming sure. from, so I think that we're all still a bunch of alchemists. What I yeah. mean is, is that the alchemists had their magnum opus, their great big project that they were trying to do, and it had two elements to it. One was the rebus, and the rebus was half male, half female, and in some sense was trying to embody all good things, and it was a representation of that, and it's a symbol of the perfected person, right? And so they have, as a means of arriving at this perfected person, the philosopher's stone, and the philosopher's stone is a piece of material. So they start to dream up this idea that the way to perfect humanity is in the material Mm -hmm. world. And now science emerges out of that. But I also kind of see that we're all still playing the same game. I meet all these scientists and these philosophers and I read what they do. And it becomes so obvious to me to some degree when reading their books that they're trying to perfect themselves. And that to some degree, their philosophy has less to do with the natural world, even if it is perfectly internally coherent, rational, and even functional or not. Um, it's an attempt to get at something that a person is missing. And I'm not so sure we made ourselves so wholly rational. And then in some way that we're still trying to fix ourselves through some intellectual gain. And that what I wonder about the authors of this is if their tra- if They've made their problem everyone else's <laughs> and that they're sexually idolizing uh, or idealizing or idolizing sex. And now they create a whole philosophy about it using the biblical text as fodder. And now we're caught in the cannon fire.
2: I don't know if I would disagree with that at all. I, mean, I, I think, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, and it, and it, it is, I mean, I think it's pretty clear to say like sexuality is a powerful part of the human experience. I mean, it's, it looms large in people's stories and their experience of their lives. And it has these kind of cultural aspects feeding into it. And then the kind of biological evolutionary biology, you know, survival instincts feeding into it as well so like sex is is a big deal um but uh there's i think most people would agree there's an easy way of slipping into like an excess as it relates to the kind of the way sexuality figures in your vision of what it means to be human and. um mm. I think some Christians at the kind of inception of the purity movement um saw that happening and rather in, in culture, in these kind of like ways that made them uncom- uh, uncomfortable and, and ways that like objectively should, it should be said like led to human suffering, like the sexual revolution, you know, like the rise of s t i s and teen pregnancy and like yeah. abortion and I'm not making like a you know a strong case like a pro life case or anything like that, but most people pro life or pro choice <laughs> would agree like yeah, abortion is um whether it should be legal or not it's not it like it's not a good thing that we're like aborting pregnancies at a at a pretty high clip I think most people would want to see that happen less um yeah. so that's seems to be and you know fatherlessness and parentlessness and divorce and all of these things are, kind of are downstream yeah. from the sexual revolution so i think christians are right to say well that's bad but rather than kind of redirecting society away from an idolization of sex i think too often it just became a christian repackaging of an idolization of sex and um the types yeah. of people you know, I got to be careful here because I wrote a book about sex and Christianity. but The types of people who, um, kind of like will go on record and write a book about that are probably the people who are pretty preoccupied with sex, um, and maybe in a way that is not as representative of a more balanced or measured or healthy way of being human. Um, and then when those books become bestsellers, that can shape a culture or a subculture
1: so last question um given all this and this long history and all these things is what's the way what's the way forward what's the next step here how does uh, christianity go about correcting this particular era especially if it might be in part a problem that traces its roots back to some of the beginning arguments in christian
2: yeah culture. well first thing i'll say is that the kind of roots of the sexual revolution arguably are very much rooted in the protestant reformation that's not an argument that i can get into in much detail here but i'll pull. um An accessible version of this is in a book by uh bridget eileen rivera um called heavy burdens and that is um the subtitle of that is like seven ways lgbt people experience harm in the church and she kind of talks about the sexual revolution as being downstream from the protestant reformation which is interesting um a more kind of conservative yeah. and pretty critical of wokeism book would be um uh, 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 why can't I think of the title? I can think of the accessible version of the book, which is called strange new world and, oh, I'm just going to look this up real quick. Cause it's going to bug me. Um, um, Carl Truman, strange new world, which is, he's a, christian kind of historian theologian Um, but then there's a bit more of a heady version of that book that he published first called there it is the rise and triumph of the modern self um, which is kind of a historical rooting of the sexual revolution i would argue if you really want to get into the weeds and jump past all of that in this book i have right here um, should do this guy charles taylor sources of the self who is a um a Catholic, if I'm not mistaken, Roman Catholic philosopher that traces the kind of modern idea of what it means to be a self, um, which has a lot of implications for sexuality yeah. and stuff like that. And I would say the Truman is reacting and using Charles Taylor or Sources of the Self a lot. And I'd just say go back to the source. Um no pun intended okay what do we do how do we move forward from here um i would argue that i argue in my book that christians need to recapture a vision of what is dehumanizing about their view of sex and then pivot to a rehumanizing vision of what it means uh, to be sexual so any way of interacting or thinking mm-hmm. or viewing um, other people that reduces them to their sexuality or dehumanizes them. And of course, like sexual abuse is a very clear like dehumanization of another person. You're kind of like violently um, asserting your desire to receive pleasure from another person and um, asserting that over them in a way that uh, dehumanizes them. But I would argue it dehumanizes the abuser as well. Um, because to like view yourself as kind of like indulging in animalistic sexual urges and not being able to help that and live in a more dignified way is a subhuman view of yourself. Um, and there's a lot that Christian theology would have to say about that. Um, but I mean, all manner of things like a hyper fixation on women's clothing or, uh sexual conquest, including sexual conquest in the form of like, I need to like find a hot spouse and marry that person, um, as well as a, a sexual entitlement in marriage where, um, you know, this is kind of like my God given right to have access to this person sexually in a way that is kind of divorced from their good or their flourishing or what might be desirable and pleasurable to them or good for their benefit. So I, um, try to capitalize on this language of dehumanization and point out the ways that I see purity culture, dehumanizing both men and women. Um, and then say a real kind of pivot to the Christian story that I see in the story of Jesus and his death and resurrection is a story of rehumanization. It's a story of becoming more human, not less human. Um, and it's not a story about kind yeah. of, um, uh, accommodating to your basest sexual urges and finding like a space that God approves of where you can live out your dehumanizing sexual urges. It's actually about maturing into a more, uh, noble and human expression of your sexual, of your sexual humanity. Um, yeah. So that's that's mm. maybe a little little summary.
1: Yeah, I like that. And if people can, uh, if they want to learn more, Non-Toxic Masculinity, Recovering Healthy Male Sexuality by Zachary Wagner, you can get this at InterVarsity Press. Yeah, if
2: you're listening to this before or April 4th, ivypress.com is the best way to get it. They'll ship it to you right away. Amazon has them in a holding pattern uh, where the official release date isn't until April 4th. But if you're listening to this near or after that, you can go ahead and order it wherever you want but IVP, IVpress.com is okay. the quickest way to get it right now okay and if
1: people want to follow your work or whatever you're doing where they can they Yeah, do I mean
2: the best place the, the place where I'm active is Twitter. Um so my handle on Twitter is Zachary C Wagner. Um z a c h a r y c w a g n e r. Um and then that same ZacharyCWagner.com is my personal website. So you can find me there.
1: All right. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you for uh, coming.
0: Yeah, out thanks there. so much. This is a lot of fun. Thank you all for joining in on the podcast. If you're hearing my voice right now, that means you've made it all the way to the very end of the podcast. So if that is the case, please consider liking, subscribing, and checking out any of the other videos or topics we cover here on Feeding Curiosity. And as another note, if you're very um much love what we do. I would be greatly appreciative, not only subscribing, but if you would consider leaving a review or providing a little bit of help over on Patreon or on anchor.fm or now called uh, Spotify podcasters, you can support us directly and help us do what we do without having to rely on other sources. I mean, really, I like being direct with people who are listening to this. So if I can avoid getting sponsors or having to do other things, Um, that I don't really feel, you know, moves my spirit, so to speak. Um, Anyways, last but not least, you can also find more of what we do, including writings and other things on feedingcuriosity.net and um, leave your thoughts. Any and all thoughts, is there any books, ideas, or people we should reach out to related to this sphere of thinking? I would love to hear it and see you all in the next episode.